Welcome to this episode of Women to Women podcast series. Our guest today is Nirupama Subramanian, passionate about living with purpose and helping people discover their potential to become leaders at work and in their personal life. She focuses on enabling personal growth along with business impact through customized intervention for organizations. She completed her undergrad degree in commerce and a master's in business administration from XLRI in finance. She has worked in Citibank, Achieve Global, and GE Capital before establishing her own practice. Her true calling is to teach, coach, and mentor others and design impactful learning interventions. She has written two best-selling novels and her third book, Powerful, The Indian Woman's Guide to Unlocking Her Full Potential, is being published by HarperCollins in May 2021. This book combines her love for writing with her passion for gender equality and women's rights. She loves traveling and learning about different cultures. She has been practicing yoga for nine years and enjoys walking amidst nature. She lives in Gurgaon and works all over the world. Hi, Nirupama. Welcome to our podcast. We are so excited to have you here with us today. I'm really happy to be here, Divya. Thank you for having me. So let's start with uh, your upcoming book, The Powerful Life. So can you talk a little bit about what is the concept? What is the book about and how did it all come about for you? Of course. So this book is a passion project because it combines two things that I feel very strongly about and I enjoy, which is writing and the focus on women's issues and women's development. So this book kind of brings the two together. And it's a result of my reading and my fascination for reading about interesting things, including Indian mythology and my work as a coach, coaching women and doing workshops for women for the last two years. So the book is called Powerful. Uh, the Indian Woman's Guide to Unlocking Her Full Potential. And that is what the book does. And Powerful Life is a whole system I've created around the book. And so the, the fundamental idea behind Powerful is that women need to tap into their inner power to reclaim their power in the outer world. So, you know, if you looked at all the research as well as history, fine, women have not really had power over the last few thousands of years. And you know, it's been a system of patriarchy, women's voices have been silenced. And even today, if you look at the numbers, uh, number of women leaders across the world, number of women parliamentarians, CEOs, people in official uh, positions of power are not really women. And that led me to wondering why this was so and you know, what did systemic oppression have to do with it? What about gender biases? And after reading everything and my work, I came up with this model I call the six feminine powers model, where I look at archetypes as powers, because that is what women have, which maybe they haven't owned, which have become stereotypical. But if you tap into those powers, you can be extremely powerful. And by powerful, I don't mean just, you know, having a position of power, but by fully being your authentic self, being wholesome, being integrated, uh, living in your full power. So that's what the book is all about. Yeah, I hope it'll serve as a guide, uh, of course, to Indian women, but to women around the world to recognize that they are truly powerful and claim that power and live that power. It sounds incredible. And I really hope our listeners um, read this book when it's released. Is it coming out soon? It will. It should be out in July this year, July 2021. Wow, congratulations. So I think it will be something interesting during this pandemic, another pandemic year, yes. You must have started somewhere thinking you wanted to go down a certain path. 
So what were your plans initially? And did you stick to the plan? How did you land up here? Well, that's a very interesting question. And, um, you know, sometimes I, I wonder to myself whether it was my plan or some, you know, big universal plan. So I did have a very clear plan when I was studying, when I was doing my undergraduate, which is I will get a master's in business management and I will have, um, you know, a typical successful career in the corporate world. So I did complete my master's from, um, you know, big leading business management school in India. And then I got placed with Citibank. I was in corporate banking. And this was way back in the 90s where, you know, uh, if you were in the financial services and if you were with the global bank in India, uh, it kind of meant that you had arrived and you were on the right career path. So till that point, my life was quite planned. But once I started working, I, I found that actually uh, it didn't make sense to stick to the plan. Uh, I realized um, I didn't like banking. Banking didn't like me very much. And I could not uh, face the prospect of spending you know, my whole career being in a bank. And I have nothing against bank and bankers. And city was a very great place to be in, but it was not me. I was not doing what I really loved and enjoyed. And then I tried exploring various options, uh, you know, everything from maybe consulting to, uh, I even thought of you know, working with an NGO, but this was where it was nothing planned, but something just happened, which is I got an opportunity to join and uh, in fact, set up and lead a training and consulting firm. It was about a year old. I really felt I wasn't doing justice to my job or managing my child. So I took a break thinking I will soon come back and you know be back in a job. But uh, since 2002, I haven't been in a job. And uh, I set up as an independent consultant. I have my own training and coaching and consulting practice. So, you know, from being an independent consultant to being an entrepreneur, you know, being on my own. And um, I think the planning really started about 10 years ago when I decided this is what I want to do. I don't see myself getting back to the corporate world. And it's not about having a linear career path. You can have a horizontal career path where I add on to many of the things that I'm doing. So, which is what I've done. I'm happy that I've been able to write uh, three books. I've been able to do what I want. I've been able to give back to the society. And none of this was as my plan 25 years ago. So clearly it kind of went a little bit sideways, but it arrived where it needed to be. I think so. Yes, it went a little all over the place too. Yes, and I think finally I have come back and I'm, you know, I, I love what I do and I see myself doing something similar uh, for the rest of my life as well. So I'm very fortunate that way that I have found my ikigai, my sweet spot of uh, doing all the things that I enjoy doing. What led you to your first book? It was a novel called Keep the Change. It was, you know, lighthearted commercial fiction. And uh, I was quite surprised that I wrote it. Uh, it came about from my personal experiences, interestingly, of having worked in a bank. So I took a lot of my personal experiences. I gave it a, you know, kind of a funny spin because when you look back at it, it was, there were parts of it which were, yeah, quite funny. But as I tell everybody, it's not an autobiography. I just chose the context and it is the story of this young girl and her adventures in the big city. And uh, I always wanted to write a book from the time I was a little child writing essays and you know, winning those short story competitions. I don't think I ever had the guts to do it when I was much younger. You know, all the usual uh, 
fear of failure, or this is not really me. I'm meant for a serious corporate career, all of that. But finally, after I took my break, and this was interesting that I, I, I took a break and I was freelancing and I was being an independent consultant. I had time, I had run out of excuses. So I thought, let me sit and uh, write a book. Uh, I was writing a few humorous columns here and there for you know some magazines and newspapers. So those days, it was humor I chose, and that's how Keep the Change was born. It was published in 2010, was a big bestseller in India. And um, yeah, so then I call myself an author, thanks to that book. I think that qualifies. <laughs> that qualifies, yes. So you never thought of becoming a full-time author and just keep going writing no, fictional novels? Mm, I did think of it very briefly, but I realized that I do love what I do otherwise as well, right? which is my, I, my coaching and my creating workshops and facilitating. So at my core, I'm a, both a, a teacher and a writer, and I wanted to do both. And also, frankly, writing does not pay the bills, not in India, at least, and you know, not commercial fiction. And, um, and I, I didn't want to feel compelled to write. I wanted to write uh, when I felt like writing which is a luxury that full-time professional writers don't have because you have to keep producing those books. Uh, so I said, I will write when I want and I will write what I feel like writing, which is what I have done. Sometimes I wonder whether I should have devoted more time and focused on my writing, but I, I feel it's not something that can be forced. And I'm very happy that I am doing all the exciting work that I'm doing as well. So. I think uh, the days of one career where you climb the ladder are probably going. So you can have multiple careers. And uh, that's what I tell a lot of young women I coach as well, that uh, don't, al don't always think. And these days, youngsters actually don't do that. You know, don't think of, I'm going to grow only in this line. Keep your options open, explore. You may not be very sure in your 20s about what you're going to do for the next 60 years of your life. And, and that's okay. So were there people that really shaped you along the way growing up? Any key influences? So interestingly, when I look back, I think the biggest influences were my parents. And though when you're young, you don't like to admit that. And I didn't want to do anything that my parents did. For my, you know, my father was in the Indian Administrative Service. And I said, I don't want to go there. My mother was a professor. I said, I don't want to teach. And both of them were interested in writing. I said, that's not something I'm going to do. But finally, you know, came full circle. And I found I'm doing something very similar to what my parents have been doing. So that is one part. But also in terms of foundational values and, uh, you know, what is important in life. I think um, my parents have probably been the biggest influences in making me who I am. And in the last few years, I would say my immediate family, my husband and my daughter have been big influences. And I've learned a lot from uh, each one of them. And, you know, apart from that, I won't say any single person, but all the amazing people I meet in the course of my work have each contributed to my growth in some way or the other. Did you ever have any role models that you looked up to? Yeah, so growing up, interestingly, my role models were all... Um, writers. Right? I wanted to be like an Agatha Christie or and an Inner Blyton, which is, you know, what we were reading those days and uh, live in those worlds and, you know, write a lot of books like them. And uh, 
So that is really what I thought I would uh, somehow end up doing. But those were the influences in way uh, which shaped my life uh, in those days. But I would also say, you know, when I was growing up in the 80s and 90s, we didn't have too many women who were role models for us as, as I was growing up. And um, that's probably true for a lot of women in my generation. When I speak to them, this is what they say. They learned a lot from the women around them, their mothers, their grandmothers and aunts. But there were very few women in the public spheres whom we said, you know, we would look up to them and you know, follow them. But now there are a lot of women leaders. I mean, I would say you know, usual examples of an Indra Nui who's been extremely successful in the United States and moved to a completely different country and made it work for her. So she is somebody who I, I would definitely admire. And also a sportswoman like Mary Com, the boxer, uh, who's been able to make it in, uh, you know, such an I would say masculine, non-feminine field and is doing that and also being a mother of uh, her kids. So I think uh, we have plenty of role models now. I, mean, I think I admire women like that. In India, only 7% of women are actually salaried, which for me was mind-boggling because I have seen a lot of women in powerful positions, uh, really great role models. But that was a statistic I was not expecting. Just 7% of women actually get paid for what they do. They're salaried. Women are amazing. They have their own key strengths. They bring all these diverse strengths to the table. Yes. Do you think we're missing out on that? Uh, I would say absolutely. So, uh, you know, I think getting paid a salary is one part. But overall, female participation in the workforce in India has actually declined. Uh, unlike other countries, India is, you know, it's really about, about, you know, 146 out of 150 countries in terms of female participation in the workforce, which is uh, not just salary, but getting paid for any kind of work you do, either as an entrepreneur or, you know, it could be a flower seller or a farmer or anything. So women's participation in the workforce and therefore their capacity to earn their economic uh, identity is, is really dismal. So I would say, yes, absolutely, we are missing out on a lot. And in this last year, it's in the pandemic year, it has touched rock bottom. And the unpaid care work that women do has significantly gone up. So in India, I think women do about 300 odd minutes of work and men do about 50 minutes of un unpaid care work in a day. So there's a huge disparity. So very clearly, a lot of women's energies are going into doing this work, which is actually work, as a lot of people have discovered during last year, uh, doing the work at home of caregiving and housekeeping for which they are not paid. And there is no monetary remuneration as a result of which obviously there are very few women who are out there in the workforce and uh, who are getting paid salaries. So I, I think we are missing out on a lot of talent, a lot of skills and a lot of intelligent capacities. And, you know, this is the interesting thing I found when I was doing research. I, I, use, I write a column on women at work as well. I found that in terms of academic uh, results in India, at least, uh, the girls do much, much better than the boys till high school. So both in secondary school, which is grade nine and 10, as well as when they pass out of high school, uh, the girls always score much better. But then there's this huge, almost like drop off the cliff where they don't go for higher education, or if they do, then uh, they don't pursue that further. 
So we are losing out on a lot of talent. And on the same note, and you, I think, mentioned this as well. There are challenges when you're trying to raise a family is also the time your career takes off and you have to make some tough choices. So for our listeners, are there certain things that you would say you should like as a criteria assess and decide what's the best path forward for you? And I get it. It's an individual choice. We all have to make choices based on our family circumstances, but any guiding markers? You know, this is one thing which absolutely, uh, that's very, very important. And this is what I've discovered both through my personal experience, as well as, you know, with the work I do with other women. Um, I think the first important uh, thing for not just women, but for anybody to, you know, check off is really what are my priorities in the near future? And I would say at least for the next 10 years. And I think it's perfectly okay for women to say, Uh, you know, as long as they are in alignment with their partner that, hey, I'm not going to have children, I'm going to work for so many years, because this is what I enjoy. And then I might take time off to have children, or I'm going to have children, but I may not be the primary earner, right? So I will not be the career primary person in my family, or, you know, have a discussion with your support system, and which may not necessarily be your partner. Uh, it could be whoever is going to be having the childcare responsibilities and find that support system and then still focus on your career. So I know a lot of women in India who have not really taken a break because one of the things we do have in India is uh, su- support in the form of uh, parents, you know, grandparents of the child. We also have relatively inexpensive help, uh, which we can have access to at home. So there are a lot of women who make sure they have that infrastructure in place and then continue to pursue their career. So I think the first thing is for you to be very clear what your priorities are and not be led by what the society expects, which is typically a women will, women would give up everything after a marriage, be motherhood and, you know, be at home and be content with the child or take a back seat. So that's a social expectations and a lot of women and I think me uh, including me kind of bought into that but I would say forget that and think about what's really going to be important for you and if your career is something that gives you joy that gives you a sense of fulfillment and economic independence which I think is extremely important for women it's perfectly okay to focus on that but then what you do need to do is to co-opt a support system. Uh, because without that, it becomes a big challenge if you try to take on childcare, home care, as well as focus on your career. It's, that is unsustainable. So put an infrastructure support system in place, uh, negotiate the boundaries, have a conversation with your partner, and then say, this is what I really want to do. And then I don't think it makes sense to plan for more than five to you know, 10 years in today's situations, but at least have that in mind. Who knows, you know, anybody can get bored of their job. And a lot of men are very thankful that their spouses have good, well-paying jobs, which enables them to take some time off, to take a sabbatical, to be home with the children if required, to take the less stressful job if that is not what they're cut out for. So I think it frees up uh, men also from the burden of being the sole providers. So I think these are some of the things you need to keep in mind and have a conversation before you make a decision uh, about your future and your career at any point of time. Were there certain values guided you 
so so it was you know quite different when i first started working i think at that time i wanted a lot of external validation which is i should have a job in a reputed organization which gives me status and i should feel good about the amount of money that i am earning and there is nothing wrong with that it's a stage of life and you know you want to when you come out of business school that could be something which is very important for you um but i think it's important to keep revisiting that from time to time revisit your values because i found that was not as important for me uh so i don't have a big i haven't had a big organization brand name behind me for ever so many years and i realized i didn't miss it so much so i think it's important to be clear about your values and it's important to re you know evaluate that i think for me what i realized was really important was excellence which is i i really needed to have mastery and be good at what i was doing and do something that i enjoyed and i was good at and therefore i could contribute that was more important second independence was very important for me so i needed economic independence which means i had to be able to sustain myself at a certain level and you know not depend upon anybody else and also independence of thought and working which is why i loved being an independent consultant and a freelancer because it really aligned with my values of let me do what i want when i want and how i want so i've been working from home for last 15 years on my own terms and uh, i want the time off to not work so i wanted independence to plan my life the way i wanted to and what i'm doing right now has actually catered to that so that was another value which was extremely important for me and therefore i designed my life around values and this is what i would tell people choose according to your values and your and if i can use the word personality or the kind of person you are rather than try to fit into somebody else's mold so even though i might say hey i'm i'm not the ceo of a large organization right now or something it it actually doesn't matter so much to me because i'm living aligned to my values and the third thing i would say is being purpose driven right so i have i think have something larger than what you see as a job or just something that gives you a paycheck and it's perfectly and i think it's wonderful to be in an organization that connects you to your purpose and you feel you're contributing so if you're in healthcare you can you can feel that you are contributing in some way to that and it aligns with your purpose you could be in a bank and feel that as well so i think as long as you aligned to your purpose and something which is slightly larger than yourself and it could be just hey i want to make a lot of money to take care of my large extended family and that's perfectly okay as well so just have that and be aligned to that purpose i think that is very important for me it's been excellence independence and purpose which have really guided me to choose what i want to do with my life excellent values so were there any challenges along the way Uh, I think a big turning point for me was to make the decision to uh, you know leave my job at that point of time leave my job without another job in hand and take a break from work and that's uh, I think that's a crossroad point which a lot of women face and at that time when my daughter was very young she was a baby it was a challenge to manage both I did not set up my support system well enough to get you know give me that confidence to go ahead so that definitely was a challenge then secondly i would say as an entrepreneur setting up your own business uh has comes with its own challenges so you have to take decisions on uh developing the business you know how do you want to grow it and 
all of these things. And I won't say they are insurmountable challenges, but these are things you have to watch out for. And very often, and, and I've noticed this while coaching and I notice it myself as well, our own beliefs come in the way. So, you know, for example, I, I, I wanted independence. So I kind of, I don't think I ever grew my business as much as maybe I could have grown it, right? So once you get into a setup or you join another organization where you might have a larger impact, but you're making those trade-offs every day, saying, I want to retain my independence. I want to focus on what I love doing, but that also means you're not going to scale and, and grow something and you have to be okay with that. So I think at every point of time, there are certain trade-offs that you will make. And sometimes you do see them as challenges, but, um, and this is from a workshop I do, which is how do you transform your challenges into opportunities? So for me, it's always about, okay, it's a challenge. Um, like last year, uh, I, I do mostly face-to-face -face workshops. So I'm in a room and I'm there with X number of people and it's human interaction. But um, the whole of last year, there was no human interaction. Everything was on a call like this. And it, it's lovely to talk to one person on a call, but doing a workshop virtually in the beginning was a big energy drainer for me. And that was something I had to overcome my own belief that it's not possible to do it this way and you know, get workarounds and become really creative to come up with ways in which I could have a similar impact in a virtual uh, medium, the same way that, that teachers are now trying to do virtual classes with their students, which earlier was not the case. And I had to go through the same challenge. But again, I say now challenge, look at it as an opportunity, you learn a new skill. And uh, now actually I find, hey, now I have the options when things get back to normal, as I hope they will, I can go back to an in-person, I can also do virtual. So I think that becomes really important. Yes, there will be challenges, but how do you focus on them as opportunities and move ahead? So you do a lot of workshops with different corporations, right? Different yes. companies. Have you ever faced any typical uh, perceptions surrounding women where they think, oh gosh, she's just a woman, we can get away with things? How shall I say? Not since I've grown older <laughs> in the last few years. That has its own advantages. So when I tell people, you know, I have 25 years of work experience, they say, okay, fine. But yes, right. In the beginning, when I started doing this work, I was in my late 20s. And I was in workshops with fairly senior men. And I was doing sales programs with senior men in the room. And I could sense that in the beginning, they, there was a thought of what is she going to teach me? Right. And, uh, there were sessions where I felt people were not as engaged as they would have been in case there was an older experienced male who was there. Uh, and what that does is it feeds into your own insecurity and lack of confidence. So the more I thought about it, the less sure I became about myself. So until a point of time, and I have to thank my, you know, my mentor for this and Mike, and he kind of pushed me into the room and said, I don't care. You have to go and you know do these workshops with these older men, and uh, so yes, it's like you're being pushed off the deep end. And uh, so I learned. I learned how to establish credibility, which you need to do, and not just as a young woman trainer in a room, but all women need to continuously establish credibility. You need to build a certain presence. You need to go with gravitas 
and confidence and be engaging at the same time as a trainer. So those were some things I picked up along the job. And so now it doesn't matter what is the group I walk into. So actually I find now I'm very comfortable walking into groups of strange older men, but uh, you know, if you ask me to teach little children, probably that would be my scary spot right now. Yes, there are perceptions, there are feelings where people you know, sometimes opt for an you know, older male trainer because they feel that person would connect more. These are perceptions that, you know, we all carry. And yes, so in, even in, in my area, sometimes I had to face that. And uh, then I had to learn from that in terms of how to quickly establish myself and tap into my inner power, which is why, I, I, you know, I think that's one of the things that led me to write Powerful is if I don't feel powerful and tap into my inner power, I'm not going to be seen that way by the outer world. If I feel powerless, uh, people will treat me as though I am powerless. So that was something I had to learn along the way as well. And do you think there are certain um, qualities that we as women should work on to make ourselves be heard more, taken more seriously, and establish ourselves as the powerhouses we are? Absolutely. And I think it's just one thing. It's self-confidence. And I don't see women lacking in skills, uh, in intelligence, in ability, in pretty much anything else in their domain. It is just the fact that they may not be con feel confident enough about what they have. And apparently, there is a thing called the confidence gap, which, the, uh, which I know from research that women continuously underestimate and underrate themselves, despite whatever they have. And there's, you know, interesting research from, uh, you know, HP did a study internally to find why women were not, uh, I think, reaching the levels of seniority that they should. And they found that women apply for a job only if they feel that they are 100% qualified and they meet the criteria. Men apply for challenging and demanding jobs if they feel they have about 40 to 60% of the criteria. So it's not that women don't have, but they sometimes hold back and choose for whatever reasons not to push themselves, not to show up as being really confident. So I would say only thing is believe in yourself, believe in your power, and doesn't mean you can get away with incompetence, but work towards something and when you have it, own it, and then show up, speak up and show up and Keep speaking up and keep showing up. And that is what will make you stand out. You also founded two organizations. One is GLOW, Global Leadership of Women. And uh, the other one is My Daughter is Precious, which you yes. co-founded with your daughter. Can you talk a little bit about these two organizations? Yes. So I'll start with My Daughter is Precious because uh, that, is, uh, that came first in a way. So that is our family not-for-profit, which was initiated by my daughter, who is, who is now 19, but it started when she was 14. And my husband and I are co-founders, so in a sense that uh, it's, it's a family not-for-profit. And uh, our mission is to support uh, the ed higher education of young girls in, in India right now and make them career-ready. Interestingly, it started off as a photography project with my husband and my daughter, where they would uh, you know, go to certain areas, take pictures of fathers with their daughters, uh, speak to them and sensitize them that my daughter is 
is precious, which is daughters are precious and they should be educated. So, um, and, you know, I would go along with them as well and uh, be a part of those conversations and the, foot, you know, the photography experiments. Uh, after some time, we felt that rather than just awareness, it's important for us to do something tangible, especially when we found that in our conversations, at least in urban areas, uh, primary education and education in school is not a challenge but many girls don't opt for higher education. One, it's because it's more expensive. Secondly, there is pressure to get married. Thirdly, they actually, the girls actually end up doing some domestic work or some other you know, work um, so that they can supplement the family income as a stopgap arrangement till they get married. So we didn't want capable, ambitious young women to lose out on the opportunity for higher education just because of lack of funds. So what My Daughter's Precious does now is we support um, young women with scholarships that go to pay their college fees. And we also provide them a mentor, uh, which is another educated woman. So there's a one-on-one -on -one mentoring which happens with for these young women to build their self-confidence, self-esteem, and to enable them to make right career choices, right? which is so important. And then we provide them uh, through GLOW, and I'll speak about GLOW, we provide them with life skills training on how to set goals, how to manage your time, how to make right career choices, how to build emotional resilience, so that by the time they complete their uh, you know, undergraduate education, uh, they are equipped with some critical skills and they are more confident as they go out into the world. And we support uh, young women from very underserved areas, so their parents almost always are illiterate. They would typically be the first girl to go get into first or second girl to get into college. And uh, we want them to get a head start in their lives through this. So, so far we have uh, funded and supported about 50 girls. And this year we just started our second project, which is for nurses. We are funding young women to study to become nurses because there's a huge shortage of healthcare providers. And this pandemic has taught us about how important it is for us to have healthcare. So we're doing that work with nurses this year. So that's my daughter's precious entirely on individual funding. So we don't get corporate funding. Um, anybody can you know, sign in and pay up anything from 500 rupees to 50,000 rupees. And the money, the 100% of the funds go directly towards uh, paying the fees. So we all are volunteers for the organization. That's incredible. Thank you. Thank you. So we are, I mean, it's, uh, I would say it's not a large established organization, but it's something very close to our hearts. And all of us, uh, we have other jobs. So my husband is in a corporate job. My daughter is a sophomore in a university in the uh, United States. And I have my job, but we all just do this because we believe in it. And we're actually growing it. We started with two girls and now we have 50 girls. So it is growing slowly, but surely. Glow is another organization that I co-founded. I have a business partner and uh, it's growing leadership of women uh, precisely because of some of the reasons that I mentioned. In my work as a coach and a facilitator, I rarely saw women in senior leader workshop, leadership workshops. And if there were women, there were two or three and they would come to me during breaks and talk about issues that they couldn't voice in settings with other men. Because it's difficult for women to be vulnerable when, you know, given that nature of the society we are in, in front of other men. So I strongly believe and I, you know, in the need for safe spaces for women to talk and share and learn together, a lot that happens through peer learning. And I wanted to, you know, hold and create that space. 
so which is why uh, Aparna was my business partner and I, we founded Glow to you know, fill that need. And what we do is, uh, of course, we work with women, women entrepreneurs. So Glow provides the mentoring for all these young women from My Daughter's Precious. We coach a lot of women. We support women entrepreneurs. Uh, along with that, we also work with organizations to create more inclusive structures, which is uh, important to have the ecosystem where women can thrive and flourish. So that's what Glow does as well. So you do awesome job. You have Glow, you have My Daughter's Precious, you have the book. Yes. It's, it's like a lot of great effort towards making women more powerful. Yes. So interestingly, there's been a big convergence with all of this, uh, you know, off late. So my writing and my not-for-profit and my mainstream work, it, the, really the focus is on creating a more just and equitable society for everyone. Amazing. So any parting words for our audiences? I would say, you know, since, of course, the podcast is Women to Women, I just want to tell women that uh, they are really very powerful. It's important for them to recognize their own power, to live it and own it, actually use that to make the world a better place. And I think that's uh, extremely important for not just the women, for the world to have more of this energy, to have bigger participation, not just from women, but from all minorities, for all people who have not held positions of power, who've been disenfranchised for so long. And I think it starts with gender. So I would say yeah, own your power, claim it and live it and uh, yeah, make the world a better place because of that. Thank you so much for your time and great advice. Thank you. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here.